Good morning, everyone. Please turn with me in God's Word to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians. Uh, Today I want to do three things, at least three things, um, related to this book. Maybe, so if you think of this sermon in terms of three pieces of a pie, I trust each piece will be sweet and... uh, Three things I want to accomplish as we turn our attention to the book of Colossians. And I have a goal uh, in view as I think of of each of these three things. The first thing I want to do is is briefly uh, give us an overview of the book. Remind us of the book's general flow. Uh, Why? It's important. It's it's important that we, we have it clear in our minds how the book fits together. How, how Paul works his way through, through this letter. Uh, you think, for example, if you go to a, to a doctor for the first time and you've got some aches and pains and, uh, you know, the doctor tell me where it hurts and you tell him where it hurts, he doesn't go straight to the pain. If this is the first time you've met with that doctor, uh, what he does, if he's a good doctor, the first thing he does is what? He evaluates your overall health, right? He gives you a checkup and maybe runs a test or two to gauge your overall general physical health well-being before he begins to hone in on specific issues or problems. Think of the book of Colossians like that. Uh, We need an overview. We need to have a good feel for the book as a whole in its entirety, uh, which is a safe mooring, if you like, uh, for when we actually get into the nitty-gritty and the details. And so I've stated it a few times that the outline of this book is very simple, as far as I'm concerned, very simple. You've got one major section to begin with. It starts in chapter 1, verse 3, right? And it goes through to chapter 2, verse 3. And I have labeled that first section doctrine. So Paul is very doctrinal. We could call it any number of things, but at least we can call it that, doctrinal. And all Paul is doing here is laying a foundation, and he's emphasizing a couple of glorious truths. And you might remember, if you were here a couple of months ago, he does so by way of a prayer. If you want to learn how to pray, place to start, Wednesday nights, care groups, we're studying the Lord's Prayer. Where do I go from there? Go to Paul's prayers. Go to this prayer in Colossians, go to his two prayers, enormous prayers in the book of Ephesians, and they will serve you well. The first chapter is basically a prayer. And in that prayer, he gives thanks. He thanks God for these believers in this far-off place, modern-day Turkey, this city called Colossae. And he thanks God for their faith, hope, and love. Having done that, he makes a very pointed prayer request. He wants these believers to be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So they might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. They might please Him, honor Him with the lives that they're living. And then still in that prayer, it really comes to this climax, this pinnacle, he worships, doxology. I'm thinking of verses 15 through 20, where we have that wonderful portrait. You think of an art gallery, a portrait. That's what you have right there in that first chapter. There's this beautiful portrait on the wall of the Lord Jesus. Uh, The Lord Jesus as he stands in relation to creation. And the Lord Jesus as he stands in relation to redemption. And so that's what Paul does basically, essentially, in the first chapter. He's thinking doctrine, he's thinking truth, he's laying a foundation, and the foundation is simply this. Believers understand this, the sufficiency 
the all-sufficiency, the complete sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing in the first section. Then the second section begins, you guessed it, in chapter 2, verse 4. He's still doctrinal. Yes, he's still establishing truths, articulating truths, defending truths, but there's the key word, defending. And so here he's a little more polemical, right? Argumentative, combative. And look at what he says in the fourth verse of chapter 2. I say this, say what? Well, what I've just said in the first section. That long prayer in which I gave thanks, made my petition, and worshipped the Lord Jesus. Especially what I said concerning the Lord Jesus. His sufficiency. He is a sufficient Savior. You do not need anyone else. You don't need anything else other than the Lord Jesus. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Because people are going to try to delude you. They're going to try. People will try to deceive you. And these arguments are plausible, meaning what? These arguments, on a certain level, they're going to sound good. But they will invariably, inevitably, prove to be spiritually bankrupt. Why? He tells us in the 8th verse, because they're man-centered. It's man's thinking. It's man's way of viewing things. It's man's way of reasoning. It's all about man. And then he gives, in this second section, three examples. I almost feel like giving a test, but I won't. Three isms. Actually, I feel like giving a spelling test. We could have some, a real fun this morning with a spelling bee, couldn't we? Three isms. Legalism. That's the first one. Warns against it. It's a man-centered way of thinking. It will drive you away from the Lord Jesus. What is legalism? Legalism is simply this. I think I can earn God's favor on the basis of my performance personal performance. Let me just pause here, lest there be anybody who's confused about this uh, right here, right now. Religion, nothing wrong with, with religion. You hear that a lot today. Give me Jesus, don't give me religion. It, doesn't, it really doesn't make any sense. Nothing wrong with religion, right? The problem is this. There is good religion and there is bad religion. You know what bad religion is? The basic premise, foundation of bad religion is simply this. God accepts me because I obey. That is the foundation of all bad religion. God accepts me because I obey. And so it is performance-based. Here's the heart of good religion. God accepts me because Christ obeyed. That's it. It's that simple, folks. It really is. Good religion, bad religion. Bad religion, God accepts me. It's all about my performance, what I do. God accepts me because I obey. No, good religion, the heart of the matter, grace. No, God accepts me because... Christ obeyed, and praise God, I am one with Christ. And because I am one with Christ, well, what God requires of me, he requires a perfect life. He requires that I obey him every facet of my life. He, he, demand, he commands that I never sin. I've sinned in so many ways, innumerable ways, but I'm one with Christ. Christ has fulfilled that requirement. He obeyed God perfectly. He fulfilled all righteousness. He fulfilled the law. Second thing God requires of me is what? Death. I pay the penalty for having disobeyed him, but I'm one with Christ. And Christ has paid that penalty. That's good religion. Good religion is Christ-centered. Christ-focused. Not about my performance, not about my feeble, pathetic attempts to please God or earn His favor in some fashion. No, it's about resting upon a perfect Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first ism, legalism. The second ism was mysticism, right? This notion that I can... uh, arrive at a higher plane, higher experience of spirituality 
And uh, there's something more to being a Christian than simply being in Christ. There's something I'm striving for, something I'm longing for, this higher experience by which I can attain to an immediate knowledge of God apart from Scripture through my personal experience. That's mysticism. That's the mystic. The third ism, my favorite, maybe yours, asceticism. The idea that I can achieve, again, some higher plane of spirituality. I can grow. I can advance. And not so much through personal experience, although the element is there, but certainly through personal deprivation. That if I deprive myself, so the ascetic, beat up my body, subdue my physical senses, that somehow that releases the soul imprisoned in my body for closer communion and fellowship with God. Three isms in this second section. And again, Paul is being combative. And he's really being frontal in his attacks. Why? Because he knows that all of these isms, these false ideas, will inevitably lead the believer away from the all-sufficiency of Christ. He's finished with the polemical section. Chapter 3 ushers in the practical section. I really dislike that word, yet I'm using it because I can't think of anything better. Can you guess why I dislike it? It gives the impression that everything we've looked at so far is what? Impractical. Well, nothing could be farther from the truth. We hear that a lot today. People say, well, just make it practical for me, preacher. Make it practical for me, pastor. Just give me the practice. What we need to understand is we cannot divorce practice from doctrine. Our practice is simply the external manifestation of our doctrine. Get the doctrine wrong, I guarantee it, your practice is going to be wrong. You start building on a faulty, crumbling foundation, and whatever you put on that foundation, guess what? Sooner or later, it's going to turn into a monstrosity, right? Our foundation has to be firm. It has to be sure. Our doctrine has to be in place. Oh, give me Jesus. Don't give me doctrine. I've heard that a lot of times. It's a fallacy. It's actually... Well, I won't say what I was about to say. Well, I will. It's rather silly. Don't give, me Je- don't give me doctrine, give me Jesus. You can't have Jesus without doctrine, because give me Jesus, the first question you have to ask is what? Who is Jesus? And you immediately enter into the realm of what? Doctrine, theology, truth. Who is Jesus? Well, Paul laid that foundation in chapter 1 in that beautiful hymn, or at least a creed in verses 15 through 20. And in chapter 2, he's emphasized our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in chapter 3, he's going to draw out its very practical applications and implications for our Christian journey. And so in the first four verses of chapter 3, this is basically what he does. Two thoughts converge, they meet in his mind, two streams. The first is this, who Christ is. He's already told us in chapter 1, the doctrinal portion. The second is this, who we are in Christ. He's told us that in the second section, the polemical. These two now meet in the first four verses of chapter 3. He summarizes these two great truths. And then from verse 5 of chapter 3, this is the third section, through to verse 6 of chapter 4, he applies it. And he gives us a stirring view of the Christian life. And he speaks in verse 5 through 11, of our relation, how it relates to God. In verses 12 through 17, more or less, how it relates to the church. Verses 18 through 21, how it relates to the family 
verse 22, still of chapter 3, into the first verse of chapter 4, how it relates to work, the workplace. And then he finishes it off, verse 2 through verse 6 of chapter 4, how it relates to the world. And so he gives us a full view of the Christian life. He's laid this foundation, who Christ is, what it means to be one with Christ, summarizes it all, bringing it to a head in the first four verses of chapter 3. That then serves as a foundation for everything he says in the rest of the letter. And so we dive in, for example. You look at chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. We cannot understand that apart from the first four verses. You look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. We cannot understand that unless we understand the foundation in the first four verses of chapter 3. And he tells us to put things off, put things on. He tells us to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. He tells us to let the peace of Christ rule over us. He tells us that the love of God binds everything together in perfectly harmony. Sheer gibberish if we do not understand the first four verses of chapter 3. They summarize everything he has said in the first two chapters, the doctrinal and the polemical. They summarize it, bringing it all, just stating it so concisely. And then they lay this foundation from which everything else now in this third section is going to flow as he draws out, oh, all the implications for every imaginable sphere of life. First thing accomplished, I can check that off my list. That's the first thing I wanted to do today. Give you an overview so you have a good feel for this book and you see exactly where we are at now in our study. We're embarking on chapter 3, entering the realm of this third section, the practical. Second thing I want to do is this. I said last Sunday that in a couple of weeks' time, I was going to return and make a couple of additional remarks on mysticism. Change my mind. I'm going to do that right now, actually. Make a couple of additional mark, remarks on mysticism. So this is an issue, one of those three isms back in chapter 2, namely verses 16 through 22. Remember, legalism, mysticism, asceticism. These ideas, these false notions, which will really lead to decapitation. They will cut us off from the head, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to return and just, just briefly, quickly, make, make a few additional remarks concerning mysticism. Why? Why am I going back to this one, and why do I feel the need to... Uh, to add to what I said a couple of Sundays ago. Let me give you three reasons. The first is this. Uh, Mysticism is deeply entrenched in modern-day evangelicalism. There's the first reason. We're not talking about something that's just kind of entering the church. We're not referring to something over which there's discussion and debate. We're referring to something that is entrenched, embedded. It is a given accepted within most of what we would identify as being modern-day evangelicalism. Second reason we need to come back to this is as follows. It's extremely difficult to let go. Mysticism, extremely difficult to let go. Uh, You think of uh, Lord of the Rings, if you've read the book or seen the movie, and Golem, is that how you pronounce his name? With his little ring, precious, like this. That's what people are like with mysticism. They will not let go. Will not let it go. Uh, So intertwined with their self-identity. So intertwined with their perception and how they perceive God and their relationship with God. 
that, um, no, it's never given up without a struggle. Third, issue, third reason is this. Mysticism is ultimately detrimental to the Christian's walk with God. Ultimately. At some point, it will prove to be detrimental to the Christian's walk with God. And so again, what is mysticism? The idea, I can attain an immediate knowledge of God. Apart, apart from the Bible, I, I don't deny the Bible is God's word. The mystic doesn't necessarily deny that. The, yeah, the Bible is God's word. But I also affirm that I can attain an immediate knowledge of God, immediate knowledge of who he is, an immediate knowledge of his will for me, immediate knowledge of his will in general, through a personal, an immediate personal experience. Uh, it isn't new. You go back for your history buffs out there, the one or two of you, your history buffs. You go back to the time of the Reformation. This was an issue. It was a big issue. Not initially, the reformers, magisterial reformers, the, it, when it comes to authority and how does God speak, there's a good question. How does God speak? When it came to answering that question, they, they are fighting by and large against Roman Catholicism. And so the assumption within Roman Catholicism and medieval Roman Catholicism was that uh, God speaks through tradition and the magisterium, right? That authority within the church and that uh, tradition was, was, it, was as authoritative, and the magisterium's interpretation of tradition more authoritative than the Bible. And so the reformers cried what? Sola Scriptura. No, God only speaks through his, his word. They fought that battle hard. Second-generation reformers were now into the early 1600s, especially the era of what we know. I'm not thinking American Puritanism. I'm thinking English Puritanism. What arose was a, was a counterattack, not from the Roman Catholic Church, but from a different quarter, the Quakers. The Quakers and the Shakers and the Ravers and all these groups who believed what? That they possessed an inner light. And that this inner light was the Spirit. And that the Spirit spoke directly to them. Yeah, they thought, yeah, God speaks in the Bible, but God also speaks directly to me. And what God is saying directly to me through my impulses and intuitions and experiences... Well, that is as important. As a matter of fact, that is more important than what we have in the Bible. And so the second generation reformers, having fought that that fight against tradition, then had to fight against this idea of this subjective experience, labeling it the workings of the Spirit. Fought it well. But over time, what has happened within Western evangelicalism is the movement, by and large, has succumbed to what was actually a Quaker idea regarding the ongoing inspiration of the Spirit of God and explains why, in part, not exclusively, we find ourselves where we are today. So this idea that I can attain immediate knowledge of God through personal experience. I gave you six examples. Do you remember a couple Sundays ago? Yeah, six examples. Let me repeat one of them because I think this represents the most common. And um, I can appeal to this one because I dabbled in it a couple of decades ago, all right? I'm sitting under a tree, coming back to you, beside a beautiful pond. Temperature is perfect. Gentle breeze. Birds are chirping, bees are buzzing, and ducks are quacking. Turtle sunning itself on a log. I'm going to pray. But rather than speak, I mean, Dallas Willard popularized this a couple of decades ago, right? And I'm speaking ill of Dallas Willard. He passed away last year. I'm not speaking ill of him, but this was, this, his book really popularized this. But rather than speak, I'm going to wait for God to speak to me. I long for conversational prayer with God. I long for a personal relationship with God. I long for God to speak directly to me. I close my eyes. 
allowing nature to surround me and envelop me and overwhelm me, and I wait. And finally it happens, I have a feeling. God is showing me through this feeling he's real. He's showing me how much he cares. He's confirming his will by giving me peace, a feeling concerning certain decisions. This is wonderful. This is God speaking directly to me. Okay? I dabbled in that. Nobody else here has dabbled in that, but I dabbled in that a couple decades ago. That is pretty common and is a common form, probably the most common form of what I'm getting at when I refer to mysticism, the idea that I can attain immediate knowledge of God through personal experience. Here are three indicators that I might have mystic tendencies. Three indicators. Number one, I believe that the indwelling Holy Spirit is the supreme authority for living and thinking. Notice what I said carefully. I believe, I think, I assume, that the indwelling Holy Spirit Apart from the Word of God, the Bible, is the supreme authority for living and thinking. That, that's mystic tendencies. You have a mystic tendencies. Second indicator, I believe that some of my inner thoughts, impulses, emotions, and intuitions are the direct work of the Holy Spirit whereby God is communicating to me apart from the Bible. Number three, I believe I can discern God's voice in my heart. I can discern God's voice in my heart. Now I want to issue three words of caution. Three words of caution. And I pray we'll ponder these and consider them. They've helped me a great deal. I trust they'll be helpful to some. Maybe I'm preaching to the choir. I don't know. But they may be helpful to some. Here's the first cautionary word. Mysticism abandons me in the midst of turbulent waters without compass, without anchor, without even a ship. It leaves me to the mercy of the boisterous sea. Why? It is purely subjective. We can impose our emotions on God and convince ourselves they're anything if we want it bad enough. It casts us upon the sea of subjectivity. Second, Mysticism invariably leaves me alone with myself. It invariably leaves me alone with myself. My relationship with God is now contingent upon my perceived impulses and intuitions. My assurance is now based on a nebulous feeling. And as I search deeper within, I plunge into a deeper state of spiritual anxiety. Here's the third word of caution. Mysticism actually prevents me from really hearing God's voice. God makes himself known the way any person makes himself known. He speaks to me from outside my heart. He speaks to me from outside my heart. Allison and I have been married, I think, 23 years in June. And I have a personal relationship with Allison. I have a personal relationship with Allison because she's a person. And if I want to experience that personal relationship with Allison, what do I do? I talk to her, and she, from outside my heart, talks to me. I don't, as I seek to cultivate my relationship with Allison, look within. 
I don't listen for her voice in my heart. I don't try to detect what kind of emotions or impulses are there in order to prove that she's real. She's real. I don't look within in order to make a real person personal. And yet that's precisely what many of us do in our relationship with God. We look within and deeper within when in actual fact we are called to look away from ourselves. We are called to look externally and look to a real person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who really speaks through this book. It's his voice. Every time I read it, every time I study it, every time I hear it preached, I am hearing the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think we appreciate that like we ought. And the Spirit, who is within, grants me understanding, illumination, whereby what Christ says, his external voice coming to me from outside myself, it's objective. It's objective. There's an objective reality to it. He's speaking. And the Spirit grants me understanding whereby that external word is internalized. It's implanted deep within. It feeds what? Faith comes by looking within. Faith comes by hearing. Faith is cultivated as we hear the external word of God. And as that faith is cultivated, Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. Do you understand? And you know what happens then? I have some emotions. They're called affections. And I do have impulses and intuitions. But you know what? It's me. It's me. It's me responding to God's voice coming from outside the Spirit granting understanding, faith being nurtured and cultivated and given an objective reality, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, He dwells in my heart by faith, and my emotions become affections. Oh, there's delight. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not anti-emotional. Oh, there's delight. And there are seasons of joy. There are seasons of grief and despair. And there are impulses and intuitions. It's me. It is simply the cultivation of what? Biblical wisdom. As my heart and mind are shaped and brought into conformity with God's revelation. And so let me repeat those three words of caution. It abandons me. Mysticism abandons me in the midst of turbulent waters without compass, anchor, or ship. Why? It is purely subjective. Secondly, it invariably leaves me alone with myself. As a matter of fact, mysticism fails to deliver the very thing it promises. It promises to bring me closer to God. In actual fact, all it does is drive me deeper within myself. And it creates terrible spiritual perplexity. Terrible spiritual anxiety. Why? Because my relationship with God is now contingent upon what? Feeling. An impulse. An intuition. Oh, and they come and go like the sun, don't they? Up and down. There it is, and there it's gone. Nebulous, flighty. No, we need a sure foundation, brothers and sisters. 
We need an immovable anchor, an immovable rock. It is the objective word of God. We hear his voice. Our faith is fixed upon it. The Spirit internalizes it, whereby Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. And yes, the affections are stirred. And yes, we have those impulses, intuitions, everything else, sure. But they are marks of biblical wisdom. They are marks of of growth. They are marks, yes, of the Spirit working in us through His appointed means, which is the external Word of God coming to us with power. The second was it invariably leaves me alone with myself. The third, it prevents me from really hearing God's voice. Let me finish this one off. You can check it off the list. I'll make one more comment in just a second. But here, let's, have, let's let uh, Martin Luther have the final word. Uh, for feelings come and feelings go. And feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God. Not else is worth believing. I'll repeat it. Write it in your Bible. Never let go of it. For feelings come and feelings go. And feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God. Not else is worth believing. Now, I hope you are asking 101 questions. Anybody? Maybe two questions? This fall, Lord willing, August, when we start Sunday school up again, adult Sunday school, we're going to go to Psalm 119. We're going to entitle that class this fall, The Sacramental Word. And we're going to consider the role that the external word of God has, occupies in the life of the believer. And through that course, I'm going to raise a number of questions, a number of issues, which my comments raise, but I don't have time to address this morning. But I I plan to address, I hope to address this fall. So something to wait for, something to look forward to, not to look forward to, I suppose, possibly, but something I intend to do anyway. In the context of Psalm 119, that phrase and understanding it, the sacramental word, and answering that question, how does God speak to me? That's the second thing done. Third thing I want to do as I glance at my watch, and I better move into overdrive here, is I want to look briefly at the first four verses of chapter 3. Lay the foundation. And then next week, we're going to get into the detail of chapter 3. And so just follow along as I read these four verses. And as I read, uh, listen for, Paul takes us on a a spiritual journey here. Uh, Listen for something past, okay? Listen for something present, and listen for something future. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Did you get the past, present, future? Spiritual journey? He begins in the past. Look at the very first thing he says in verse 3. If then you have been raised with Christ. It's past. He makes reference to it again right at the start of verse 3. For you have died. And so there's the starting point. We're about to embark on a little journey here, packed into these four verses. He says, here's where we're going to begin. In the past. And we're going to begin with what? Your death, burial, and resurrection. 
What's he referring to? He's referring to our union with Christ. I'm a Christian. And I became a Christian at a moment in time. At that moment in time, the Holy Spirit made me one with the Lord Jesus Christ. And because I'm one with the Lord Jesus Christ, I am one with him in what? His death, his burial, and his resurrection. So as a Christian, I stand before you right now, and I can state emphatically, because the Word of God declares it, that Christ's death is my death. Oh, praise God. His crucifixion is my crucifixion. His burial is my burial. And his resurrection is my resurrection. That's true legally, meaning what? That I, 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 because of my sin, that penalty, that threat of condemnation, judgment, hanging over my head, the wrath of God. Oh, sinners are storing up wrath for the day of judgment and condemnation. That was my predicament. That was my state because of my sin and my rebellion against God. The penalty being the wrath of God. But now I am one with Christ. His death is my death. His burial is my burial. His resurrection is my resurrection. Meaning what? That because I am one with him, he who paid the penalty for my sin means what? He has paid it for me. I've paid the penalty. Can you believe that? Me. I have paid the penalty. Nothing I have done in my own strength. Nothing I have performed historically. But by virtue of the fact that I am knit together with the Lord Jesus Christ. What is his, God now reckons to be mine. That's what it means to be a Christian. Christian is a little more than just inviting Jesus into your heart. It's not a bad place to start. What really means to be a Christian means you are one with Christ. And because you are one with Christ, the penalty for sin is gone. There is now no condemnation for those who are, oh, one of the most precious little words in all of Scripture, in Christ Jesus, legally. But not only that, because I'm one with him in his death, burial, and resurrection, it means I'm united to him by the Holy Spirit. And it means all that sin, everything I was, yes, it's all been judged, it's all been buried, and there's now, there's now a new principle with him. I still know there's nothing good in me, my flesh. I'm riddled with sin. I prove that every day. Demonstrated it already today. But the wonder of wonders is this. The Spirit of God now resides within. It means the power of sin is broken. This is a historical reality. This was the starting point of our spiritual journey. Paul reminds us of this here. But then he moves fast forward. And he says, look, now think in terms of the present. What does he say about the present? Right there at the end of verse 3, for you have died, here's the present, and your life is, this is wonderful, hidden, hidden with Christ in God. Hidden, hide and seek, hidden what? It means at least three things. Firstly, it definitely means identity. My life is hidden with Christ in God. That means my identity, I, I call myself what? A Christian. Named after whom? Christ. I've taken his identity. My life is hidden in him. All that I am, I am in him. It implies at least, secondly, security. I'm hidden in him. Right? All whom the Father has given to me will come to me. And no one, heaven or hell, will be able to snatch them from the palm of my hand. Absolute security. And it implies what? Hidden secrecy. There's something secretive here. Something secretive. 
Um, from where you're sitting, you don't see me as I really am. Praise God. And same is true. You know what's coming. Christians, I don't see you as you really are. As you really are. It is hidden in Christ. Our identity. Who we are. What has been lavished upon us. Heirs of salvation. All of the promises. All of the blessings. Yes, we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Positionally, legally, it's all ours. You and me, we haven't yet entered into the full reality of it. It is hidden. But then Paul continues on this journey. We've gone from the past, uh, dabbled a little bit in the present, and now he comes where? To the future. Verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, here we go, then you also will appear with him in glory. It's coming. We know it's coming historically because it's been done. It was a definitive act, the death, burial, resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, yes, hidden with Christ, the life I live, hidden with Christ in God, but I have this great hope. I have this unwavering, unshakable assurance that when Christ appears, I will appear with him in glory, the the perfect renovation of me, body and soul in the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that is a summation. If we grasp that spiritual journey, what we're getting then is the summation of the most important points Paul has made in the first two chapters. Who Christ is, what he has done, and what it means to be one with him. And then in the midst of this spiritual journey, these great truths, he issues two commands. Middle of verse 1, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The emphasis there is on the heart. It's moral. Second command, outset of verse 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Two commands. The first is moral. Second is mental, I guess we could say. The first has to do with the realm of the heart. The second has to do with the realm of the head. Are you following Paul's logic? It's very simple. Okay, I want you to think. That's what Paul is saying here. I want you to think. I want you to understand who Christ is seated in the heavenly places. I want you to understand what Christ has done. I want you to understand what it means to be in union with him. Past, present, future. Do you get it? This is what he's doing here. Do you get it? Let's pause. You're considering this. You're reasoning it through. I've declared it. I've articulated it here the best I can. This is what Paul's saying. Now, if you get it, if this is making sense to you, if you grasp who you are, your identity in the Lord Jesus Christ, this only makes reasonable sense. You will seek the things that are above. You will set your mind on the things that are above. What does that mean? It means I'll set my head and heart upon who Christ is. Daily. It's the image of the invisible God. Firstborn of all creation. Firstborn, preeminent. Why? Because he's created all things. 
And because by him all things are held together. I set my heart and head upon the Lord Jesus Christ, not only who he is, but what he has done in the past. I remember his glorious work of redemption and how he has transferred me, a sinner, from the kingdom of darkness into his own kingdom, a kingdom of light. I remember his present work and what it means to be one with the Lord Jesus what it means to be part of this spiritual body, this body which has a head, this body which is knit together just like our physical bodies with joints and bones and ligaments and tendons, that this spiritual body is held together by the Holy Spirit. It is animated by the head, the Lord Jesus, energized by the head. It is the head that infuses life to the entire body. Oh, and I set my head and heart, I, set, I seek things above. I set my mind on things above. I, I, I consider not only who Christ is, not only what he's done in the past, not only what he's doing now, oh, but what he's going to do tomorrow. That day that's coming. He is coming again. I remember being engaged to Allison. It was a sweet time, about a year. But uh, nothing compared to marriage, right? Engagement, just something you kind of have to go through on the way. That's where we are now, folks. We're engaged, Right? kind of in that betrothal period, if you like. And it's sweet. It's, it's, it's sweet. It's, God's, it's upside. That's good. But it's nothing like marriage. It's nothing like what's coming. It's nothing like what he has prepared for us, God in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul's point in this sweeping, these verses are just beautiful. He, he, dare I say, he's at his best here in this epistle, right here. As he brings it all to a culmination, who Christ is, what it means to be united to him, draws out the obvious implications. Therefore, live. Live in the reality of who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ by seeking things that are above, by setting your mind on things that are above. This provides strength. Oh, tremendous strength. Oh, our time is going. It provides tremendous strength. Oh, here's strength to um, reject vanity. Right? Vanity of vanities. We've been hearing it from Joel in the Sunday school book of Ecclesiastes. Here is strength to resist vanity. Uh, here is strength as we obey this command in the light of who we are in Christ, our identity in him, here is strength to, real, to have a true evaluation, estimation of things. What it means to seek first the kingdom of God. Simply rest in the fact that God will take care of the rest. Well, here is strength when we... Uh, here is strength to suffer hardship. My life's a mess. been a mess for a long time. And I'm in the tunnel, and there is not even a glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel. Here I am. Dry, dry, weary, weary land. But this reality of who we are in Christ, that we consider, as did the Apostle Paul, we consider that present suffering. Oh, it's so difficult. I have not mastered this. I don't claim to for a moment. But we consider that present suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. Oh, as we bask in who we are in Christ, past, present, future, we set our minds there. We live in, our, in the reality of our identity in Christ. And here's a third implication. It strengthens us 
in the pursuit of holiness. And that, my friends, is exactly where Paul is going in the fifth verse. It strengthens us in the pursuit of holiness. It stirs us on. It motivates us to live now here in the reality of what we are in the Lord Jesus Christ and to strive with all our energy, strive with all our strength to put off the old and put on the new as God conforms us to his very likeness in holiness and goodness. Pivotal verses, aren't they? Pivotal verses. The believer, take them to heart. Memorize them. Each and every day, take stock of who you are in Christ. And obey what the Word of God says. I must actively set my mind on these things. I must actively live in the reality of these things. And unbeliever, consider, take stock. What it means to be found outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. What it means to be found outside of the one in whom alone there is salvation. The one with whom I must be one in his death, burial, and resurrection in order for God to forgive me. In order for God's justice to be satisfied. In order for God to grant me eternal life. I must be one with his beloved son, Jesus Christ. The one believer, friend, consider this. Consider your condition before a holy God. Consider that it is appointed unto man to die once, and after this comes judgment. Consider what it will mean, what it will be to fall into the hands of an angry God with no Savior to mediate for you. Consider. Consider well. Take stock and repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father, We pray that now by your spirit you might take what we have heard, considered, pondered, and meditated upon and apply it deep within in accordance with your sovereign will. We pray that you would be well pleased that your kingdom might come among us, that your will might be done among us. And we ask this for the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.